Welcome to Blink of an Eye, where we interview thought leaders and deep thinkers on trauma healing wisdom. Blink of an Eye brings you a collection of unparalleled and diverse views as we take you on an inspiring and unvarnished look at the true nature of trauma in all our lives. Our next trauma healing learning guest is a seasoned psychologist who has reshaped how people experience therapy related to life traumas. Dr. Ayers Greenwich challenges traditional therapy narratives and trauma labeling by fostering an environment that eschews labels and embraces individuality and nurtures a feeling of connection. Her approach deeply influenced by attachment theory and interpersonal psychology, creates a haven of acceptance where people feel understood, valued, and complete as she works with patients, helping them restore their feeling of wholeness. Stay tuned. Dr. Emery Ayers Greenwich is a licensed psychologist with nearly 20 years of experience specializing in trauma and perinatal mental health through her practice, Matriarch. Known for her warm and collaborative style, Dr. Ayers Greenwich challenges therapy stereotypes of dysfunction and instead emphasizes human resilience. Her approach, influenced by attachment theory and interpersonal psychology, fosters a non-judgmental space for clients. She rejects defining individuals by diagnoses, viewing them instead as unique and whole. As a member of the Maryland Psychological Association and certified in perinatal mental health, she values diversity competency and regularly seeking professional support of a wide variety. Welcome, Dr. Ayers Greenwich. May I call you Emery? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yes. Thank you for calling me, Emery. I'm much less formal than Dr. Dr. Ayers Greenwich. I feel like you're talking about somebody else. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast, Louise. I'm just, I'm so grateful to have the opportunity to reconnect with you. I know when we first met, it was by happenstance, just walking down the street and passing by your office. And you just had this light that shone from you that it was like a beacon from across the street, this brightness that just exudes from here. And I loved having the opportunity to connect with you then and spend a little bit of time getting to know you and learning about what you do, including this podcast. And so it's just an absolute pleasure to be able to be here and have the opportunity to share a little bit about what I do and some of my knowledge and expertise and I should clarify by saying that I I wouldn't necessarily identify myself as an expert in trauma. I would say that I am highly informed, you know, definitely use a lot of trauma-informed theory in my practice. And that being said, it's hard to separate the human experience from trauma. And I can get into that a little bit more, maybe even share a little bit here. The longer that I've lived this life and done the nature of the work that I do, the more that I've come to see that 
life in some ways is a series of traumas. If we define trauma as something that overwhelms our nervous system or capacity to cope in a particular moment, then isn't that all of life? And mm. yet, we also are able to find the tools and the resources and the support to help us to grow, move through those things, integrating them and moving us to the next level of our development until we meet the next hardship, whatever it may be. It's one of the worldviews that you hold, Emery, that attracted me to you as I got to know you and to follow your work. Because this experience that you and I both view as being completely human, and it's not just one time, but this overwhelm experience of trauma and that it can happen again and again, and the issues being how do we work with it, learn from it, integrate, become more fully who we are, knowing that all along we were whole, but it's not the experience that trauma brings to us when we're in the middle of it. So thank you for framing it so beautifully as we really continue on. You know, I have been following your work and while both of us are working deeply in trauma, you know, one might say, who is an expert on trauma? You know, perhaps anyone who has lived through and is able to draw insights and see herself or himself or themselves as not just a survivor, but a a thriver has become their own expert in trauma. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really wondering as we venture forward in this conversation with that beautiful framing that you've given us, if our listeners might know a little bit more as I do now about you, but a little bit more about you on the inside in a way that you might share with them about what has motivated you in your life and to move into this direction of working with those who are experiencing real losses in their lives. It's so funny being in this seat, being an interviewee. Oftentimes when I'm on calls like this, I am the interviewer. And it's another invitation into that, like the vulnerable space that trauma breaks us open to. And it's when we can like be in that vulnerable space that we have the opportunity to call. What attracted me to this work, what attracts the majority of us, I think, to this work, is that part of us that has also been wounded. There's a, a, there's sort of like a saying in the healing community, the wounded healer. And I think that there are a lot of people, a lot of therapists who can identify as that myself being one. And without going into all of the gory details, I can say for certain that I have lived some life and I've had some life experiences, some things that both wish that I didn't have to learn life lessons in those ways. And I'm also grateful that I have the opportunity to grow and become a different person as a result. And that that sort of set me on the course of being interested in psychology. I became a, a patient of psychology. You know, I saw my first therapist when I was relatively young. And it sort of continued to develop there so that when I got into college, 
the coursework that I was attracted to, the things that I was naturally inclined to, were these pieces that were around the human experience, around our potential for growth, around our potential for healing. When it came time for me to choose a profession, it was a combination of both my natural inclination and also some older wisdom pushing me in the direction of a career in clinical psychology and went to school out in California at a small private school called the Wright Institute that really, that experience really nurtured my development. I feel like I grew a hundredfold, both by way of being all the way on the other side of the country, having to be in that deeply vulnerable state of being in a new space, new people, new ways of thinking, going from, you know, previously kind of experiencing myself as one of the more highly engaged students in the room to a whole room full of people similar to me and having to like be humbled by that. I, I won't bore you with the details of all of my training experience, but it has been varied and many. Uh, fast forward to several years ago when I decided to open up a, a private practice and really questioning kind of what was my heart called to? What did I want to work in and work through and support other people in working through? And having just recently had my children talk about like a vulnerable experience, it felt like that was the perfect place to go. There's It's so rich for transformation, being in that space of becoming a mother, revisiting the ways that one was parented, having to integrate things from the past that maybe one has had one viewpoint on since they were a child and up until that stage of adulthood, but then now being on the other side, you know, having the opportunity to integrate it in a different way, having a different level of understanding and compassion for those who've come before us. And so from that place, it, I was pushed in the direction of reproductive mental health. I sought out special certification in perinatal mental health so that I can have more of that that lens. And it's been it's been a beautiful journey. I'm grateful to have the opportunity to do this work. And I know you're still on it, but I think of what you just mentioned for any of us when we find ourselves in a new place, whether it was from a move, you know, related to a big life change or for you as a very bright student, finding yourself in a new school with other very bright students, you know, and realizing that, oh, I'm maybe not as shiny as I thought that I I had been or was, and just that experience too of overwhelm and just the life experiences that every one of us listening in right now might think, yeah, I can resonate with that, not to mention new motherhood and all of the overwhelm and then the compassion for self and for those who have come before us who have shaped us up to that point that can really flow at least mm-hmm. potentially if we're not uh, blocked by Absolutely. the overwhelm for for too long for too long. Absolutely. I love your reference to the wounded healer 
I think of the work of Henri Nouwen, uh, the famous philosopher, French philosopher, whom I think was the first to create that term wounded healer and how we're all constantly needing to be aware of what motivates us and our own work Mm -hmm. as we are working with others in similar Mm -hmm. situations as our own. There's another term that I recall hearing in graduate school that, you know, when it came time for people to choose their topics for their dissertation, recoining it, research, right? That we're naturally sort of drawn to the things that we are curious about or we are experiencing because we want to understand ourselves, you know, ourselves as well as others, because I don't know if there's a way to truly understand ourselves in isolation, kind of touching back into what you, you know, what you were saying about um, me looking from an attachment lens. You know, one of my biggest refrains in, in therapy when I'm working with people is talking about how we weren't meant to function in isolation. Mm-hmm. We're social creatures. We're tribal creatures. And you know, we really need each other. And we need each other to both survive and also understand ourselves. One of the things that's so fascinating within my work, and maybe you're aware of that too, there are there are neurons in our brains called mirror neurons that are implicated in helping us to understand what is happening in another human being. And from that place, being able to develop compassion, empathy, and also engage in co-regulation with one another. So, you know, it's our relationships with one another are so profound and they're so important in our ability to remain open and not blocked, my capacity to be open and present and resonant with another human being, help them to take the disparate pieces of their experience and make sense of it in a way that can be easily digestible and then integrated so that they can make sense of themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah, part of their own me research yes. or me search. Exactly. I just love that. Exactly. You know, this quality of mirror neurons, and especially in your work in perinatal mental health, I think of babies, right? And, and how we know it's mirror neurons that allow that very first smile, that very first human gaze to be returned when it is so openly, lovingly given. And it's all part of our neurobiology that we are mirroring each other. And I I think of relational reciprocity, which is a theory we espoused in the book, Being Relational, that what it is that we are offering to others, it is returned. And that scientific principle of mirror neurons that establishes and authenticates that truth. I love that you have raised that. Where do you see mirror neurons also at work in your, or maybe at play in your daily work that you're doing with uh, clients or patients? That's a great question. The thing that immediately comes to mind is, you know, kind of part of what I had said before, which is that 
it's in my capacity to be open, to pay attention to those finer details of what somebody's body language might be communicating. Also being aware, kind of on a visceral level, in this like unspoken space at times of what it is that a person may or may not be able to tolerate in terms of me being able to give back to them. It's so hard to define, but I feel like it informs everything. Well, I'm thinking about what you said about just co, the ability that we all have to be restored to our own sense of co-regulation, but it doesn't necessarily happen in the same sequencing or same pacing for one person as for another. And so that delicate sense of timing that you must develop, I imagine, in your work. Absolutely. And a lot of patience too, kind of going back into the lens of trauma, oftentimes the people that I'm working with have not necessarily big T trauma. So I'll, I'll kind of define these two. Yes, please do. There's, when we talk about trauma, as I said earlier, it's this, it's an experience that overwhelms our nervous system and overwhelms our capacity to cope in the moment. But there can be big T trauma and there can be little T trauma. Big T trauma are things like accidents, you know, a devastating loss, sexual abuse, physical abuse, things of this, these natures, things that threaten our life or our bodily integrity. Those kind of fall under the heading of big T trauma. And then there are little T traumas that, you know, happen on a more regular basis, like chronic or regular misattunement from other people who aren't coming to relationships in that space of wanting to understand the other person. You know, having somebody having an embarrassing moment in front of a large group of people. I'm failing to think of something oh, I'm else. thinking of ones that but, are chronic, if you will, where in the environment there's an, a, a verbal assault that might just be sort of mean, but cumulatively can yeah, add up to the same experience as a big T, even though it's a series of little T's. So, you know, talking about pacing and timing and understanding where people are, it really depends on what combination and how many of those traumas have they experienced over the course of their lifetime and when, with the sort of thought being that earlier on, when the brain is forming, when it is you know, more sensitive to develop in its developmental stage, that it could have more lasting impact. Now, I also want to make space for the fact that the brain is plastic and that there's a lot of opportunity for growth and development and healing to occur, even past the point where the brain has, you know, fully developed. We, we are always still changeable. That's what um, you mean by plastic, that, that there's a lot of plasticity. Yes that still yes. the brain is able to still rewire and to create new synapses and neurons. That's right. That's right. And for the people who have experienced traumas earlier in life, as a clinician, I have to be mindful that these are ones that will take long 
you know, I may have to be more patient, that their that their trust may have been broken repeatedly in very small ways that set them up to expect the world will respond to them in a particular way, so that when they engage with me, I both am mindful to try not to trigger those responses in them. And when I do, to support them in re-regulating their nervous system through deep breathing, through co-regulation, through the acknowledgement that there may have been some breach that has occurred, right? Whether whether I perceived it as a breach or not doesn't really matter. It's it's a matter of how the other person perceived it. And giving the opportunity to sort of like put all things out in the open, right? It's like oftentimes where where we experience the most illness or dysfunction is when things are disintegrated, when things are not discussed, when things aren't out in the open. Where the healing can occur is when we're willing to kind of like talk about the hard mm-hmm. stuff. So slowing things down, being very mindful that, you know, using my body at times even and with the tone of my voice of going slow having a very measured response, you know, mindful that there are some forms of trauma that respond better to something that might be a little bit more firm and contained, a tone of voice that's a bit more firm and contained to give them the sense that, you know, of safety, of safety and boundaries and security and others that need a little bit more softness. I think what you are highlighting that is... So many things are so valuable, Emery. I think one of the pieces that you've just highlighted that is really worth underscoring is how important it is for a practitioner to have an understanding of trauma and especially for a client who has had early trauma, as you've mentioned, when they were young, when the brain was developing not fully uh, matured yet, even though we are aware of plasticity. And to have that type of measured and compassionate response, knowing that it might take uh, gentle coaxing and the ability to talk about things that might need to be talked about many, many, many times, as in bits and pieces, rather than just sort of a get over it. You know, you're an adult now. That awareness, that's the trauma lens, I think, that you're speaking of that you bring to your practice. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the get over it approach doesn't work too well. And you know, let's share with our listeners. We know it doesn't, but let's share with them why it doesn't from a practitioner clinician perspective. Well, I think if people could get over it, they would, you know? It, nobody wants to sit in a place of misery. Nobody wants to sit in a place of nervous system overwhelm. Nobody wants to be easily triggered. Nobody wants their relationships to be challenged um, or challenging, rather. I think at our core, what we really long for is for ease and comfort in our relationships. We're constantly looking for that sort of like return to you know, the ideal modeling experience where it's kind of wordless, it's formless, where your your needs are understood without you even having mm-hmm. to express them. Mm-hmm. 
just gives me goosebumps. <laughs> and yet, unfortunately, even in motherhood, you can't do that. It still requires a baby squeaking, crying, howling, wailing, <laughs> yeah. you know, howling, even that in these earliest times of our development. Here we are faced with a trauma of sorts where our nervous system is overwhelmed. And in addition, we are completely reliant on another human being to be able to support us, to lovingly see us as best as they can to be able to address what our needs are. We'll pause now in support of our sponsors who support Blink of an Eye. We'll be right back. Blink of an Eye nonprofit is filling a gap nationwide in response to spinal cord injury trauma for families in the first hours and days of injury. With fewer than 20 hospitals in the country having SEI expertise, Blink of an Eye has navigators who themselves have been there as SEI survivors and who are trained in relational approaches to trauma, who are available 24-7 to support families, empowering them on their journeys, navigating their lives, and interacting with medical staff for the first 30 days. The nonprofit's mission is to transform the SCI crisis experience into an extraordinary one, despite the devastation. When you learn of a newly injured SCI family, call Blink of an Eye on their toll-free number, 1-844-41-BLINK. You can also learn more and get involved with Blink of an Eye at www.blinkofaneye.org. Blink of an Eye is sponsored by Baltimore Mediation. Since 1993, Baltimore Mediation has been leading the way in a relational approach to conflict and problem solving. They are national leaders in teaching and providing fully immersive and experiential online training in mediation and conflict transformation skills. Register for the next course at www. BaltimoreMediation.com. The quality of your interactions at work, at home, and in your daily life will be transformed. And you will create more well-being for yourself and others. Better process, better outcome. Baltimore Mediation. And now, back to the show. I think what's coming to my mind right now is this illustration of, you know, a baby crying, screaming. And if a mother said, you know, like, be quiet, stop, you know, like, and, and any mother, any parent, any father knows any that parent, yeah. is not going to quiet a child and indeed will increase the agitation. And it's similar for us as adults when something is triggered from the past or we're on automatic and someone says like, just stop. Like it's not necessarily That's going right. to work either. Yeah. No. In the history of calm down, never has the phrase calm down ever calmed anybody. <laughs> Especially when it gets it's, louder and louder. And yeah, calm so, down. I said, calm down. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. It's, you know, and yet it's so hard because it's so easy for all of us to be triggered, for our own nervous systems to be triggered and to lose that patience. Mm -hmm. And I think 
it takes a lot of internal work to, to work on regulating our own nervous system so that we can be present for ourselves and for others. And that's where compassion and empathy sort of like has its start. I'm wondering too, with this place of being open and where empathy begins, I know you're very influenced by attachment theory. Can you share with us briefly what attachment theory is and how attachment theory finds its way into your practice? The premise of attachment theory is that we seek attachments to our primary caregivers whenever we're feeling dysregulated to help to calm and regulate us. And based on the work of Bowlby and Ainsley, these are two psychologists from decades ago, there was defined four different types of attachment. Secure, uh, secure attachment, avoidant attachment, anxious attachment, and disorganized attachment. The securely attached individuals are, or children are ones that, when introduced into a strange situation or a stressful situation without their secure base present, they're able to regulate themselves outside of the presence of, of their secure base being gone. In addition, they seek proximity to that secure base when they come back. The anxiously attached individual will become distressed whenever their secure base leaves and also cling when they come back. They weren't able to regulate themselves. The avoidantly attached individual in this strange situation is apt to shut down and go inward not really show a lot of signs of distress. And upon the reintroduction of who should be their secure base, not really seek the proximity, not seek out the support. And then the the final sort of category of the disorganized attachment is one that doesn't really have a clearly defined attachment style. This is one that will scream and cry and hit come close, but also move away, doesn't really know how to engage with the attachment figure at all. So first of all, thank you so much. Not meaning to have you, the professor airs Greenwich coming out today, but first of all, just thank you so much for (laughs) those definitions, because I believe so many of our listeners will gain value just from understanding those four well-defined, well-acknowledged styles of attachment and, of course, looking for secure attachment. And so with that knowledge, I'm wondering how that informs your practice. Well, when I'm meeting people for the first time, I start to get a sense for their attachment style. And one can tell, you know, based on certain interpersonal qualities, based on body language, based on reports of kind of what the nature of the relationships are outside of the therapy, outside of the therapy room. And once I kind of have a sense of what that style might be, then I start to think, okay, what was missing? What was missing in those earlier times that now 
I get to support them in recreating so that they can have a lived experience, to use a, a technical term, a collective mm-hmm. emotional experience in this therapeutic relationship so that they then have a body memory of what it feels like to be in a, in a healthy, securely attached relationship so that when they go out into the real world, they then can start to differentiate between what that feels like and what mm-hmm. this feels like. You know, it's sort of like culture. How do you know what American culture is until you go to another country, right? How do you know what white culture is until you experience another cultural perspective? Yeah, the compare and contrast is so valuable. It's not until you take yourself out of something that you've been used to receiving that you can start to really sense the difference. So... Using myself as a tool, as a relational tool, and not only kind of how I go about approaching that work, thinking about what was it that was missing in those in those early experiences, or what has been what has been harmed along the way. What does this person need to re-experience in order to regain their faith in humanity? And that's not to say that everybody is trustworthy or all situations should be treated. openness and trust, that too can be a problem, right? For perhaps more of the anxiously attached person that is really seeking proximity, sometimes to people that aren't safe at all, you know, there's a, there needs to be a lesson there, a lived experience of a lesson of slowing down and letting the trust Mm -hmm. go as it's time. Yeah, really lovely. I think about how important that must be, that knowledge base of yours when you are then working with with moms, but also with any of your clients who have experienced trauma, helping them to re ex- recreate and then a body experience because we, we know that trauma is integrated mm-hmm. through the body. That's just an amazing way that you work that. And it does need to be that lived experience, right? Because these traumas that we experience, whether they're big T traumas, little T traumas, they sort of knock us off our game. They they disrupt our ideas of how we think relationships work, how we think the world works. It overwhelms our nervous system. And when our nervous system is overwhelmed, we feel flooded with feelings of fear. And when that has happened either in a large enough quantity or repeatedly over time, and then our nervous system becomes more kind to feel that. And it reduces our capacity to be in a state of flow, to be in a state of play, to yes. see the opportunities for possibilities. So when we think about trauma healing, what we're thinking about really is nervous system re-regulation and finding that safety once again within ourselves and within relationship. Even if that doesn't mean that whatever the awful thing was needs to have not happened in order for that to be found and rediscovered, that there are ways for us to continue to move through. And we can still think, I, I wish that it didn't need to happen like that, you know, or I, I, I wouldn't have chosen that for myself. And yet I can still be okay yes. in right. spite of that. Right. Despite the devastation. I am so appreciative of yes. the 
view that you take that we all want to experience ease and we have capacity to be in flow. And I, I suppose we could say that that's how we came into the world in many ways, unless, of course, one of the earliest traumas was through the birth canal. But here we are with this mm-hmm. as humans, with this ability to experience flow and your work in helping adults and mainly adult women reclaim that sense of ease and flow regardless of the numbers of traumas or the big T. I I just love how you do that. So, you know, you take this worldview that we are whole and that we all Mm -hmm. came into the world whole and we have this capacity to Mm -hmm. flow and that through our lived experiences that have created overwhelm for us, our flow gets stifled. And indeed, our central nervous systems Mm -hmm. can become rewired in a way that continues to clamp the flow. Mm -hmm. What are the Mm -hmm. methods that you, as a clinician, would use with a patient to help remove those clamps and be restored to the natural sense of flow? Sure. Yeah. Thank you for for rephrasing the question. I I joke, but I'm not really joking that I paid a lot of money to get a degree to learn that the answer to most questions is it depends. You you sound like a lawyer. I learned that in law school too. (laughs) A great deal of sweat and dollars. (laughs) I think that it's... Yes, a great deal of yeah. sleepless nights spent on, on money was spent to learn that it the depends. answer to most questions is <laughs> it depends. But, you know, I think some of my, my favorite go-tos are exercises that, you know, I don't think I'm going to blow anybody's mind here. Mindfulness meditation. Allowing oneself to just be with the present moment, which I say it as if it's an easy not. thing to do. It's not. Our minds are always going. The internal chatter is always there. And it's not about shutting down the thoughts or having them not be present because that's not going to happen. Uh, it might not even happen after death. Who knows what happens to consciousness after we die. But it's really about being present with what is, and allowing space for what is, but without getting attached to it, without paying it too much mind. I like to suggest to people exercises that support the grounding in the present moment, and sometimes that literally means grounding, going outside, taking off your shoes, putting your feet in the bare grass, just listening to what's happening around you, feeling into the sensation of what's happening underneath one's toes, taking in the sights around you. There are sometimes for people where I find that the thoughts get very loud in their own head, that focusing on one's breath is too much. It's still too close to the internal, but they need to go slightly more external. And in that case, I might suggest lighting a candle, and just concentrating on the flicker. And when your thoughts start to come, bring your attention back to the flicker with the candle, watching the flame, 
listening to the sounds around you, seeing how many you can call into your awareness, how many you can hold at once. And your thoughts also become part of that. And can you allow space for all of that to, to occur? There's another beautiful one that I might do for but I encourage people to get into a quiet space. I'm doing it. I feel naturally inclined to do it now. I do it with you. Taking a few deep breaths, using your hands on their hearts, you're pushing into that heart space a little bit. This action simulates a hug, simulates that pressure that we might experience when someone's holding us close and simultaneously calling to mind time when we have felt deeply loved, seen, resonated with, with awe, seeing if you can call into your body, that body memory of what that felt like at that time, allowing the waves of that to grow within you. Oftentimes, some people experience that as like a warmth radiating from their chest, radiating throughout their body to all that I might use. I had the opportunity to have some exposure to and am interested in getting more extensive training on is EFT tapping, which kind of pulls from ancient wisdom, Eastern philosophy, Eastern medicine, and tapping on certain meridian points. Also, repeating certain phrases to oneself that reaffirms one's safety in this present moment, reaffirms one's integrity in this present moment to help to reduce the feelings of nervous system overwhelm and reintegrate into oneself. And if people are interested in that, they may um, go to, one could Google EFT or emotional freedom technique. It's really powerful. When I was in some of my greatest, highest weeks of overwhelm, when our son Archer was a spinal cord injured, and I knew of tapping, and it was almost instinctual, having taken a class, that I, as I sat in the in a chair bedside in the ICU, I began tapping purposefully up my arms and down my legs, saying, "I'm not alone. I'm not mm-hmm. alone. I'm not alone." It was. Very, very powerful. Yeah. Yeah. Also reminding people, you know, there are certain traumas that people experience that they don't have the capacity. They don't have the opportunity to fully escape. For example, racism. And we live in a deeply racist culture. And, you know, I am not a person of color. I sit in a place of a lot of privilege and having to have that lived experience. I'm also mindful that for people of color existing in this world, they don't know when the next time it's going to come, you know, whether it's in a big T trauma form or a little T trauma form, microaggressions, people saying things that are, that is coming from a, a well-intended place, but is deeply hurtful in some ways and ways that are, harder to really put one's finger on and define. And in that scenario, you know, I support people in really affirming that their body doesn't lie to them, 
know if something felt off mm-hmm. yes. and it was off. The wisdom of the and body. And they're not crazy. Mm-hmm. And in addition, it is okay to seek comfort and safety with people and in communities where you know you are not going to experience that. To use those places as a space to debrief, to try to create distance, you know, from those who are more apt to harm and injure us in that way. Those are some of the kind of go-tos that I might that I might use. I just love how your work is with trauma, perinatal, mental health, that it is also really bridged over into the work of diversity and slight and the kinds of little T's that can also be ongoing. And the answers come back to compassion and the ability to co-regulate the body. And it occurs to me that you give permission for people to return to their, their groups where they feel safe as an arm's length approach while they reclaim themselves before re-entering back out into the world where they might experience another little T, but they return with a feeling of greater wholeness once they've had the opportunity to retreat yeah. and co-regulate again. Which is the natural response yes, exactly. that we should have, right? We retreat. If something hurts us. Yes, exactly. We need to retreat. Yeah. You know? That's the natural response. No, we need to retreat. We need to find safety and security and others kind of going back to the secure attachment, right? Like something is strange, something is harmful. We take in the situation. We do our best to regulate ourselves in the moment and we seek safety and proximity with others until we can feel safe again to venture out. And that might be a place as we wind down this amazing conversation where you have done some of your greatest work, making it safe enough for people to know it's healthy to retreat and then giving them the tools and the confidence and the ability within themselves to re-engage, come back out into the world. Yeah, where there is ease and when there is not (laughs) to do it again. At the risk of sounding like a super cheesy therapist, which I guess I should just own, that that is part of who I am, I think that it does kind of all come down to love and love in the form of compassion, compassion for oneself and others. And that doesn't necessarily mean, when I say compassion for others, it doesn't mean that we always have to move close. Yes, exactly. Sometimes in those interpersonal hurts, right, we can have compassion and understand that that person was functioning from a place of hurt or a lack of knowledge or awareness, and we can hold space for that compassion for them, but also recognize that it's not healthy for us to be close. And then that we have compassion for ourselves. Because it's not healthy for any of us to fling ourselves into danger over and over again. Yeah really beautiful. Emery, your work is very powerful. And I think about that breath work that you invited us to experience for even a minute or two and the outcome of anyone who works with you 
being reminded that they're not crazy, as you said. You know, these things are momentary, by and large, for most people. Uh, The ability to talk things through, Mm -hmm. the ability to resource the body and to learn about that resource that you invite people mm-hmm. to learning. It's incredibly valuable for all of us. All of us. Thank you. I was so grateful to have the opportunity to reconnect with you here today and to to share a little bit about myself and how I approach this work and what the beauty of this work can be. Well, thank you for a sense of completeness right now. Thank you so much for this opportunity. Through her work, Dr. Ayers Greenwich teaches us the power of embracing uniqueness, individuality, and connection. Her rejection of trauma labeling underscores the importance of seeing individuals as multifaceted beings, not defined by diagnoses, who have capacity of being restored to their personal sense of wholeness, despite their diagnosis or life situation. Her emphasis on creating a non-judgmental space serves as a reminder of the profound impact acceptance and understanding can have on mental well-being and the role of gentle co-regulation between the provider and patient to rewire the central nervous system. Her dedication as a doctor to continuous learning also highlights the significance of humility, humility of the practitioner expert who continues to seek her own growth while staying open to the diverse perspectives of her patients. Her views and practices encourage us to champion human resilience, celebrate individuality and return again and again to being present to ourselves and to others. Stay tuned for more incredible insights and learnings from esteemed physicians, therapists, and healers in our Trauma Healing Learning Series. Together, we are raising the vibration for healing. Life can change in the blink of an eye. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Subscribe to Blink of an Eye on our website, blinkofaneyepodcast.com, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.